Welcome to this podcast from the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. As part of the celebrations for DTB's 60th anniversary, we've recorded a series of interviews with people who've been associated with the journal over the years. These include some of the members of DTB's editorial board who talk about their clinical role and their involvement with DTB. We've also recorded an interview with Dr. John Dowden, editor of Australian Prescriber, who has been a colleague and friend of DTB for many years. In this first podcast, I talked to Dr. Joe Congleton, who is a consultant at Integrated Respiratory Care based in Sussex. We discuss her clinical work and also what prompted her to get involved with DTB 21 years ago. Joe, do you want to just introduce yourself and say a little bit about your your background and your current role? Yes, David. So, as you say, I'm Joe Congleton. I'm currently a consultant based in Brighton and Hove. So, I qualified in Cambridge and London, quite different environments. And then my first job was actually in Brighton. And I continued my training in Brighton, Leeds and London and took up a post in respiratory medicine consultant in Worthing District General and was there for several years. In 2016, I moved to Brighton to take up the post of integrated respiratory consultant, working with the community team and in primary care, as well as the acute trust. And that post really opened my eyes to patient care and really changed the fundamental way I thought about delivering care to patients. In addition, I've been co-clinical lead to Kent Surrey Sussex Academic Health and Science Network for some years. Um, Our programme is involved in delivering large-scale change across Kent Surrey Sussex. For example, we've had a programme improving delivery of the COPD discharge bundle across the region. And fairly recently, I was appointed as clinical lead to the Sussex Integrated Care System Respiratory Network. And just as a bonus question, How much of your time is about improving systems and how much of your time is about face-to-face management of patient care? So now as I'm approaching the end of my career, my face-to-face clinical sessions are are significantly reduced and my clinical role is in the interstitial lung disease service in Brighton. And I spend the majority of my working time trying to improve systems and and giving a clinical viewpoint uh, of how those systems should, what direction they should take. Now, obviously, COVID since 2020 has played a huge part in all our lives, particularly delivery of healthcare. How has COVID impacted on respiratory services in particular? Um, And how are you recovering from, from that experience? It has had an impact in many, many ways. But just to give some examples, the community team service has been really quite disrupted. And in particular, I think there's been a a real effect of not being able to deliver face-to-face pulmonary rehabilitation sessions. So the teams adapted quickly and and started delivering some virtual or paper-based sessions, but the evidence base for those is is not as strong. And we're pretty certain that the face-to-face sessions give greater effect. In my own team, we've really missed 
having access to spirometry, which is a fundamental tool in assessing for possible airways disease, which is it, a really one of the most common respiratory conditions. And we're still a long way behind in, in accessing spirometry for our patients. In the acute trust, there has been logistical problems in cohorting patients, so cohorting COVID negative, COVID exposed and COVID positive patients. And this continues to be a major challenge. And out of COVID, I mean, you talk, talked there about having to adapt services to deliver interventions virtually, see, see people on, online. Are there some positives? Um, are there things that you'll carry on doing now that you think are actually worth main, maintaining? And how have patients reacted to virtual consultations? Pre-pandemic, we'd been really wanting to introduce some virtual clinic appointments where appropriate. And we've really been struggling to, to put this forward. However, interestingly, overnight with the pandemic, this became possible and initially all our appointments were virtual. However, now we're offering a mix of face-to-face -face and virtual where appropriate. And I think in all the time, I've only had one patient have a negative comment about a, a virtual appointment. And as long as it's felt benefit for them and they see the reason for it, I think it's welcome done. And sometimes at the end of an appointment, I say, so the next appointment, would you like that face-to-face -face or telephone, if I have no strong feelings of it? So I think it's welcomed. The other thing I think that, that has changed, I think we will continue to wear masks for face-to-face -face patient contacts. And I think in the past, we went into work with viral infections. I think we won't be actually going in with symptoms of a viral infection in the future. Over your career, major changes in management of respiratory conditions, particularly therapeutics, what would you say are the, the big hitters that have made a significant impact over the last 20, 30 years? So I've been practicing respiratory medicine for some time now and, and seen some changes in therapeutics. And one of the major changes I would say is the recognition of the value of non-drug therapies and in particular pulmonary rehabilitation. It's, it's one of the few things that we prescribe where patients come back to clinic and report a hugely positive impact on their health status. Another change which I've seen is the development of the multidisciplinary team, not just for lung cancer, but for other subspecialties. And a well-functioning MDT can deliver holistic care to patients in really quite an efficient manner. In interestingly, that, that those are you know, major features that, that don't include, include drugs, and yet drugs form a huge focus um, in terms of prescribing, getting the right drugs to the right right patients. Why, why do you think there's so much more focus on drugs and promotion of drugs than there are on the other aspects of respiratory care? So drug therapy does seem to get more attention than other interventions. And um, for example, you know, if we open the BMJ, do we see a full page advert for pulmonary rehabilitation? I don't think I've ever seen one. Whereas you page after page of 
adverts for inhaled therapy and other drug therapies. And I think that that marketing is, you know, the investment that pharma is able to put into marketing their product, we, we just don't have, we don't, we don't do for non-drug therapies. So there's uh, clearly a lot of focus on on um, using drugs and inhaled therapies and prescribed interventions for, for respiratory conditions. But is the evidence for them so much better than it is for the, the non-drug interventions that we have on, on offer? I would say no. If we think back to the lung health study that was published in the 1990s, and that was a study of the effect of quitting smoking as non-quitting smoking on the decline in FEV1. And the, the difference between those two arms was huge. If that had been a drug responsible for the effect, that would have been a blockbuster drug. More recently, the COVID pandemic has shown us the really large reduction in exacerbation of COPD rate from shielding, mask wearing, and increased hand washing. And if we compare that to the fairly modest stroke marginal effect on reduction in exacerbation rate shown by really large expensive trials of one inhaler against another, I think there's a huge difference. And in terms of um, inhaled therapies for um, respiratory conditions, obviously big focus on, on inhalers and the recent drive to use greener inhalers what, what's your view on on the greening of inhalers and the the need to use more environmentally friendly inhalers it's interesting because we do have a large number of resources and a lot of information as to how to to make that change and use inhaled therapy which is effective but has a lower global warming potential but we still got quite a long way to, to go in that, in that I think it is important and it's not just in inhaled therapy as well I think there's there's an impact on the environment of lots of other aspects of healthcare but certainly there's quite straightforward ways that are you know non-harmful or even beneficial to patients that we we've got room for improvement and in, in in terms of getting the best use of of inhalers, as, you know they are they are widely used. They are do form a, a key part of of therapeutics. Do you think we're doing enough to help patients get the most out of inhaler? I mean, they're they're you know a, a bit of techie equipment that people have to get used to. How good are we at helping patients use their inhalers properly? Properly, I would say there's room for improvement. I still see patients who have been prescribed a meter dose inhaler without a spacing device, and it's always more effective to use a spacing device with a metadose inhaler. And I, and I do know there are respiratory reviews happening where there isn't a visual check on inhaler technique. However, I think that the message of the, the importance of inhaler technique and checking this is getting through. So I think things are going in the right direction. Um, you've been involved with, uh, I was looking back, you, your first credit on the back of DTB was, I think, April 2001. Um, so what led, what first got you involved with, with, with DTB? Um, and really, what's, what's kept you going? This is, this is your 21st year of, of being part of the, the DTB family. What, what's kept you going? Um, it was quite by chance. I used to chat with 
Emma Baker, a clinical pharmacologist, now a professor who was working at St George's, and she worked with Joe Collier, who was one of the earlier editors of DTB. And, and Emma and I used to talk about published clinical trials when we were on conferences, and I, I remember I was quite opinionated about the, the value of those trials. So one day out of the blue, I got a call from Joe Collier and asking me to be involved. And having been, you know, an avid reader, and, and I filed all my DTBs in my file that popped through the door from medical school on, it was like a real opportunity to become involved. So 21 years later, I'm still involved. I, I do think much of what is published and what we read has an agenda behind it, both in medical and non-medical press. And I think it's really important to have something that is an unbiased, independent viewpoint. And I think the DTB it, it, it is something that does that. And it's a rare beast. You touched on there the sort of agendas that, that in publishing and in what, we, what we're exposed to in terms of um, maybe pharma-led or whatever, we're, we're seeing, and James touched on it in his editorial, ever closer links between pharma, MHRA, NICE, Department of Health, and I guess they would cite the vaccine um, development program as, as a as a tangible benefit of, of having a close relationship. What what's your view on kind of the the merging of relationships between pharma and the healthcare service? So there does seem to be a rather worrying trend of stronger links between pharma and delivery of healthcare. Uh, and we, you know, we see that if we, we look at guidelines and uptake of certain devices being encouraged. I'm thinking of pheno devices here. So they, they do have a, a role. However, it does seem to be that it's in the manufacturer's interest to increase the uptake. It's a difficult subject, I think. Um, but I do think we, we need to be a little wary. So in terms of uh, where kind of respiratory services go, what, what are your kind of hopes for the next um, five, ten years in terms of what, what we will see and what will make a real difference to patients? What I would really like to see is, is development of integrated services, true integrated services and pathways well, I think that improves patient care. They're not shunted between one service and another, but they should really have one overall pathway. I think um, another thing would be development of pathways that are based on, on symptoms. And one thing I'm thinking of is, is breathlessness. So too often patients are shunted between cardiology, respiratory back, but there is... Um, published soon, there's a draft form of it, a breathlessness pathway, which should encourage uh, certain tests in primary care with further tests, perhaps at community diagnostic centres, and then for uncertain diagnoses in, in secondary care. And I think those symptom-based pathways are, are, are potential for step forward. On a slightly different note, I think we, 
I've been a little bit slow on treatment of respiratory viruses. We sort of tended to pass them off as, as fairly trivial and, and in fact gone to work with respiratory viruses on board in the past. Uh, and we, we've seen from other conditions such as hepatitis C or HIV that antiviral therapy can be really effective. So I think we might become more precise about diagnosis of viral infections in respiratory conditions and have more effective treatments in the future. And just, I mean, I've got one one last question, but in terms of um, patients and involving patients in decision-making, how widespread is that in respiratory, in your experience in respiratory medicine? And, and how good do you think we are about describing to patients the absolute harms and benefits of, of, of treatment and involving them in, in discussions? I think myself and my colleagues, we all think we do that and would like to do that but actually when it comes down to it I think we're we're not really providing personalized care as as we should so I think there is definitely room for improvement in that we're quite quick to prescribe and, and I think again perhaps don't always take the time to describe the potential benefits and the potential harms of medication and although there is written material, it's perhaps not always in a way that is um, most helpful for patients to understand. Thank you for listening to this special 60th anniversary podcast. And I hope you'll be able to join us for the next one in a month's time. Don't forget that we also have a monthly podcast in which we discuss the content of the latest issue of DTB. You can find more information about DTB and a link to our podcasts on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Please let us know what you think of these podcasts. We would love to have your comments. You can leave us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. And there is a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, you can email us directly at dtb.bmj.com. We're also happy to receive suggestions for other topics that you think we should cover. Thank you for listening.